Great to see you all. My name's Luke. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm part of our preaching team. And uh, at least in our family, um, I'm probably maybe tied for maybe tied for first with my oldest daughter, but I'm, I'm the guy that likes music the most in the family in terms of like, I'm always kind of thinking, what's the perfect song for this moment? And so sometimes you discover new artists and you discover new people and you kind of want to get familiar with their music. Um, that happened to me recently. I was hearing somebody rave about a particular band. I was like, oh man, I want to check it out. Well, one of the cool things that they have um, on Spotify, which is kind of the music thing that I listen to, is they have this kind of like, this is a particular artist. They have these playlists where what they do is they take all their songs and kind of compile them into one playlist. And always they kind of have what they think are the most popular or the best songs kind of at the top. And so if you're not familiar with this, like uh, some of you have a certain vintage uh, or just anyone who likes music, you might, uh, you might look uh, at the Beatles, right? For instance, you might go, okay, uh, what are the Beatles songs? Okay, Hey Jude, Here Comes the Sun, Yesterday, Come Together, Let It Be. Now you might go, well, no, I think Come Together is actually number four or number three or you, you want to like, you know, but, but you get the idea. You get kind of their best songs. Some of you, you know, this is a band that's been playing a lot in our house, uh, Mav City. Uh, some of you are Mav City fans and they're pretty good. Uh, a, a rapper that you might not be familiar with, but as a Christian is re- really well known is NF. And so, oh, we got some NF fans in the house. All right. That's pretty good. Another thing you hear a lot in our car with the windows down and the sunroof back is Florida Georgia Line. Uh, I call it bro country. Uh, don't hate me, but it's uh, just kind of fun. And so I was like, man, what, what about, like if we looked up the Apostle Paul's playlist? Well, I actually found it on Spotify. And, uh, and the passage that we have for today is number two. This is number two behind only Romans 8.28. Uh, this is a key passage, right? There's just lots of things when you think about the, all that the Apostle Paul wrote in the New Testament, Colossians 1, 15 to 23. This is a, this is a mega hit uh, for him. And so as I was reading in some of the commentaries, I mean, you just see that this is some of what commentators had to say about this passage. Of all the Bible's teaching about Jesus Christ, none is more significant than this. We, we've, got, we've got these headlines here. Another one is uh, one of the Christological, well, maybe... Yeah, here we go. Next. One of the Christological high points of the New Testament. Another commentator said, one of the most profound portrayals of Jesus in the New Testament. Another said, the rest of the letter is an exploration of this text. So this is a big text. This is an important passage um, in, the, in the letter. T- I almost said the Gospel of John. I'm still like so in the Gospel of John, right? We're in Colossians, in the letter to the Colossians. This is a really, uh, really pa- a big passage. If you weren't here with us last week, last week we kicked off the series, and essentially what Paul was saying in the first uh, number of verses was saying, hey, I have heard amazing stuff about you. Paul has uh, kind of been going around the Mediterranean Rim, kind of what is modern day uh, Turkey and Greece, and he's been starting new congregations. And uh, one of the congregations he didn't start is this congregation here in Colossians. But he has a friend who's told him all about them, and so he's writing them this letter. He's saying, I've heard amazing stuff about you. I've heard about your faith and your love and your hope. And it's just so encouraging to see how the gospel is bearing fruit and growing in your life, just like it is all over the world. And so I'm not just content with how great it's going for you, but I'm actually praying that you'd have even more. I want you to be even more filled, even more encouraged, even more hopeful, even more faithful. I've heard great stuff. I'm praying for even more. And what we're going to see today is that that more is found in Jesus. It's one of the reasons I got thinking about the idea of a playlist is because this is just kind of an interesting little thing. Almost all the commentators agree that these verses at the first part of this passage today are one of the earliest hymns of the Christian faith. 
Now, they sort of disagree. No one knows for sure. Did Paul uh, write it originally himself? Is this something that was kind of in circulation in those days and was known? And so he borrows it to kind of help talk about what he's talking about. But this is, it's poetic. Uh, You see kind of these repeated themes that sort of come up. And what it's showing is that everything that we hope for when we hope for more is found in Jesus. Now, to understand what Paul's really doing in this text, I want to ask you this question. Um, How great does something have to be for you to want to invest in it and keep investing in it? Um, Or another way to think about the question is, how great does something have to be for you to want to have it and never get rid of it or never even change it? Like, think about this. How great would a house have to be for you to go, that's the house I want. I don't envision any upgrades for the future. It's the house that I'm just going to be in for the rest of my life. A couple of you might be in a house like that, but pretty rare. How great would that house have to be? What about a particular car? How great would a car, a particular car for you to be like, this is it. This is the car I'm just always going to drive, right? Some of you, you do that with your jeans. You're like, this is the Levi's 541. That's my pair. Like, I'm never get, not wearing those, right? Well, how, how, how great would it have to be for a car? Or uh, maybe there's a particular jacket or a particular coat or something. You go like, this jacket, if I had this, this would be amazing. Uh, Molly the other day sent me this, uh, you know, Instagram thing of this, this really cool, like, I don't know, piece of luggage. I'm like... Right, and you go, is this, does she think I would like this? Is this her asking for this? Her birthday's coming up, like, what, you know? But like, but I don't, I get that for her. Don't tell her. I might, you know, I don't know. But but there's nothing in me that thinks that that's the last piece of luggage I'll buy. Because it's not that great. How great would the espresso, (laughs) what? It's a good bag. It's just not that good. It's going to wear out. Man, you guys, be nice to me, jeez. You, you get the point, and, and, and here's the problem with this. The problem is uh, people in the you know, production world, they call it planned obsolescence. Products are actually designed to wear out. I mean, things naturally just wear out, but then they also make them cheaper and worse than they would if you were have to have it, have it forever. And so things are inherently cheaper because of planned obsolescence. It's just they fall apart, they wear out. Is that how our faith is? It fits for a season, but we don't really expect it to last. It helps us in a time of need, but you know, when things get better, maybe I'll discard it. You know, we have kids now, and we got to, you know, really focus on our faith now, but, but will you focus on it when you have great-grandkids? And what the Apostle Paul is doing in this passage is he's saying, listen, I want you to grab a hold of Jesus by faith and never let him go. And, and, and we would hear that and go like, okay, that's great, but there's nothing else like that in my life. There's just maybe who you marry and maybe who you marry. What else can you think of that's like, this is the thing I'm doing forever, right? Because nothing is that great. Nothing is that profound. Nothing is that lasting. 
And so what Paul's doing in this passage is he's saying, hey, I want to show you something that is so great that you should embrace it and never let it go. And it's Jesus. And it's easy to let go of our faith. It's hard to hold on to it because the world starts to look attractive and because we start to experience disappointment. We pray to the Lord. He doesn't answer. We say, God, I want you to work in the person's life and he doesn't do it. We experience suffering, we experience loss, we experience difficulty, internal, external, it's all over. This is a hard faith to hold. It's easy to grab. Do you want to not go to hell? Right, a lot of of people walk that aisle. But what's going to help us hold the faith? Here's what's going to help us. A vision of the greatness of Jesus. So that's what Paul's trying to do in this passage, is say, I'm going to lift Jesus up. And so the, today's message is why Jesus is worth everything. And what we're going to do is just see this avalanche of description of Jesus. And I hope that what it does in, in me and in you is that it stirs our affections to go, yes, yes, I want to grab Jesus and I don't ever want to let him go. So let's pray that God would Give us that vision. Father, we invite you now by your spirit to open our hearts, to open our eyes, to help us to see and believe and know and feel and experience the greatness of Jesus. God, that it would not just be interesting, but that it would be transforming as we seek to grab you and hold on to you, knowing that it's actually you who holds on to us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Paul gives us seven characteristics about Jesus that tell us why he is worth everything. And the first one is this, is that Jesus is God made visible. Jesus is God made visible. If you have your Bible, look there at verse 15. It says, he is the image of the invisible God. In verse uh, 18, I'm sorry, in verse 19, it says, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So we read about Jesus, and you, you hear about this man, and he like falls asleep on a boat, and he gets hungry, and he's walking around, and he's telling stories, and he's like a normal person. And, and what Paul's saying is here is go, yeah, he's, he's definitely a normal person. He wasn't like a pretend person. He wasn't a hologram of something, but he is God made visible. Verse 15 says God's invisible. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is He is God in the flesh. He's not kind of like God. He's God. Uh, Look at, uh, well, look at this, these pictures side by side. Picture that I took of Hank. That's me and Hank on the left, and that's uh, me and my grandpa on the right. And I've showed this to some people, and they've gone like, you guys are the same. You know, even Molly, a lot of people tell, uh, her that Hank looks like her, and she said, no, he looks like you. But, but you look at that and you go like, do we look the same? Well, I mean, broadly speaking, yeah, you guys kind of look the same. But, but actually you go, well, no, you look similar. You look similar. You, I can tell there's a family resemblance. I can tell you're, you know, he's your son, but like, you know, you're not the same. The question when it comes to Jesus is, is Jesus the same as God or is he just similar? 
Is he kind of like God, a lot like God, boy, I really see a resemblance, or is he in fact God? And Paul here says he's the image of the invisible God. He's in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. But it's not just the testimony of Paul. It's the testimony of the rest of Scripture. John chapter 1 verse 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, that's talking about Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Not just similar, but the same. In Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, it says, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature And the rest of this will come into play in a minute. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So what is this? Is Jesus the same or is he just similar? Well, this is actually a question that has been raised throughout the history of the Christian church. There was a teacher uh, in the early part of church history named Arius. And he was confused about this. He developed what was kind of known as this Arian controversy. Don't think like 1940s Germany. Think uh, Arian like Arius. And uh, the, the question really related to this, this issue of, of, is it the same nature? Is Jesus the same nature as the Father, or is he similar? And so, as they wrote the Nicene Creed, and the creed a few decades later uh, in Constantinople, they were wrestling with this question because, because Arius was saying, no, 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 he's not, Jesus isn't the same as God, he's just a lot like God. Now, if that's familiar to you, That's because generally the people who come to knock on your door say the same thing, right? That's the way that Jehovah's Witnesses, that's the way that our LDS friends and neighbors, that's the way they see it. Yeah, Jesus is esteemed and Jesus is respected and they would even use language like Jesus is Savior, but is Jesus God? And if you go back to that slide, what what it came down to actually was was one letter in this this thing. You had uh, homoousis or homoi. And, and that one letter is a world of difference. And what happened was the early church said, as they looked at Colossians 1, and as they looked at John 1, and as they looked at Hebrews 1, they said, oh, the teaching of Scripture is not that Jesus is similar, it's that he's the same. Listen, other faiths, other traditions, those folks I just mentioned, they, they honor Jesus they esteem Jesus, they respect Jesus, but not that much. And a Jesus who's just a little bit smaller is just a little more manageable. And it puts a little more on you and on your effort and on your goodness and on your deeds. And the Jesus that Paul is lifting up is God made visible. Which means, if you get to the second thing, Jesus is therefore ranked number one over everything. Jesus is ranked number one over everything. Verse 15, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, this word firstborn becomes a a question, right? Because people like the Jehovah's Witnesses and LDS, they'll say, aha, see, firstborn of all creation. That means that in in the creation, he was the first one created. So he's similar to God, but he's not actually God. What, what does this mean? Well, the word firstborn obviously can speak to like uh, sequence, but in the scriptures, especially in the Hebrew worldview that shapes Paul's mind, firstborn is not just about sequence, it's about rank. The firstborn was the highest rank. The firstborn was the preeminent one in the family, the top dog, 
The firstborn son got twice the inheritance of every other son. The firstborn, you see this in Psalm 89. In Psalm 89, verse 27, the psalmist writes, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Speaking about David. Well, David, I don't know. He wasn't the firstborn in his family, but he was firstborn. He was highest. He was the king. He was the king through which the king of all the earth would come. So this idea of firstborn is speaking to Jesus as higher ranked. He's going to use it again, uh, firstborn in, um, where is it? Verse 18, he'll use the same word. So Jesus is number one. Jesus is highest ranked. And, And this is, as I was thinking about this, I was like, okay, who's the highest ranked athlete? Who's the highest ranked movie star? Who's the highest ranked musician? Who's the highest ranked billionaire? Who's the high? And the problem with this is that all of those folks fade. Now, for some of you, I realize no one will ever be better than Michael Jordan. Blah, blah, blah. We get it. But who would win today between LeBron James and Michael Jordan? Michael Jordan would not win. You guys are delusional. Stop it. I mean like 60-something-year-old Michael Jordan. Come on. Still Michael Jordan. Get a life. Get a, you're wrong. You're wrong about that. It'd be a close game. I'll give you that. But it, right? See, this, this is what's hard. Is, is in our world, number one, you're only number one for now. Like you're the big, biggest billionaire until your purchase of Twitter makes the value of your Tesla stock go down. Right? Like it's always for now. But, but here's, here's what Paul's saying is he's the firstborn over all creation, meaning forever he's ranked number one. I see a picture of this in Isaiah chapter 6, that great throne room scene in Isaiah chapter 6 where it says, in the year that King Uzziah died, King Uzziah reigned in Israel for 52 years. He was big deal. He was number one. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Many people think that was the pre-incarnate Christ that Isaiah saw. When the greatest in the world die, Jesus is still on the throne. Jesus is still number one. He's the firstborn over all creation. Here's the third characteristic of Jesus that makes him worth everything is he's the creator of all things. Maybe we just assume that by what we've heard so far, but Paul doesn't want us to assume it. He wants us to see it and hear it and believe it. Verse 16, for by him all things were created. And then if you're like, okay, Paul, do you mean all things? He's like, yes, I mean all things. Well, what about things in heaven? Yes. Well, what about things on earth? Yes. Well, what, you know what? Let me just spell this out for you. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. That's Paul going like, hey, there's not one square inch of the universe over which Jesus doesn't say, that's mine. I made that. 
And in particular, and this will come up later in chapter two, uh, when Paul talks about thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, this is almost certainly a language of angelic beings. It seems like the Colossians are somehow wrapped up in kind of angel worship, and they're tempted to kind of elevate this sort of spirituality above Jesus. And Paul's going, no, 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 the one that made all those spirits that you're so intrigued by, that's Jesus. He created them in heaven, on earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authority, all things created for him. I think you know this. The, we might debate what a song means, but the song means what Bono says it means. The, the song means what Taylor Swift says the song means. Right? The artist gets to define the reality. The inventor gets to say, this is what this is for. Now, you might decide to use it for something else, but, but the, the inventor says, no, I made that. Th- that gives it definition. That's who Jesus is. He's the creator of all things. He's not just the creator, though. This gets really interesting. Verse 17, he's the linchpin of all things. Jesus is the linchpin of all things. Without water, the body shrivels and dies. Without electricity, a computer won't work. Without uh, glue in the binding of a book, the pages just fall apart. You don't have a book, you just have pages. And without Jesus, the universe collapses. Look at verse 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He didn't just speak it and set it into motion and let it rip and then step back. But just like it said in in Hebrews 1, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Here it's saying all things hold together. Our uh, beloved, uh, one of our beloved worship leaders, Matthew Brazelton, is in the middle of quite a project at his house. Uh, He is building, he told his daughter, I'll I'll build you a tree house. And so uh, thankfully he has a neighbor, Matt, who's actually good at building stuff. And he enlisted (laughs) Matt. And I think, I'm like, so are you going to still, is this still going to be a treehouse or are you going to like Airbnb this thing? I don't like, here's the, like this, you know, that looks pretty dangerous, <laughs> right? And so I'm like, gosh, how is that thing going to, how's that thing going to stay up? And he goes, hey, let me, let me show you. And so that's how it's going to stay up. You drill that puppy through the tree and it's holding a lot of weight. Now, will I get up there? Probably not. <laughs> But, but that's, a, that's a really thick version of a linchpin. That's Jesus holding up the universe, holding it together, sustaining it, nourishing it, strengthening it. I know that it feels to us like the world is out of control. I know that it feels to us like things are falling apart. They're not. And to the degree they are, it's because Jesus is allowing it to happen but he is holding it together. He's supreme. He's the creator. He's the linchpin. He's the sustainer. And he's also, it says in verse 18, the head of the church. Verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. Uh, Now, this uh, has struck me as kind of odd because what Paul's going to do here is he's saying he's the the image of the invisible God. He's the creator. He's the sustainer. And now in a little bit, he's going to talk about how he's he's the Lord over the new creation, that he's going to make all things new. And in the middle of it, it says, and he's the head of the body of the church? Why? What does that have to do with anything? Like we were just talking cosmic and big and grandiose and all of creation, and now we're talking about the church? Why? 
Because, as I said, he's going to talk about how Jesus makes a new creation. And do you know what is the number one sign of the new creation to the world? The church. And so Jesus is the head of that church, it says in verse 18. He's the head of the body, the church. We are the sign to the world of Jesus. We are the sign to the world that Jesus is inaugurating new creation, and Jesus is our head. That means our ability, get this, do not forget this ever, our ability to be a good witness to the world depends entirely on staying connected to the head. We, we, we lose that. And, and our image to the world is distorted. And I know that a lot of us, we've had hurt with church. Hurt kind of makes it feel, some of you go, yeah, I've had hurt. A lot of you go, hurt's like the very floweriest way to say it. Some of you have had real disappointment. Some of you would probably use, depending on your situation, the word Trauma. And if, if you've had that, I just applaud that you're here. You're still in it. But, but here's what I want to tell you is, is the church in all of its failure, right? Because listen, pastors will disappoint you. And if I, if I haven't disappointed you, stick around. Get to know me better. It won't be long now. Right? But, Leaders will disappoint you. Councils will disappoint you. Elder boards will disappoint you. Therapists and counselors and the people we lean on, they'll disappoint you. Jesus won't. And so this is why, this is why you can't leave the church. As scarred as she is, as messed up as she is, as distorted as we are, we're connected to Him. You can't say, well, I... I just want the head. I don't want the body. That doesn't work. The decapitation is death. And this is what Jesus wants to be connected to. This is who Jesus loves. He loves us. Isn't that amazing? So Jesus is the creator of everything, but he's also the head of our church, which means we have to stick close to him. Well, let's get into that new creation. Paul talks about it in verse 18. In verse 18, he says, he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And so this takes us to this reality that Jesus is founder of a new creation. Just like Jesus initiates creation, he initiates new creation. Just like Jesus is supreme over creation, he is supreme over the new creation. And so here's what the Bible teaches, is that God is going to make all things new. Isn't it, isn't it scary when you don't know what's coming? I mean, just think about something like, if I, if, I, if I said, hey, get in the car with me, I want to take you somewhere. Like, if you really trust me, you might go, okay. But most of you, the whole time you'd be like, where are we going? What is this going to be like? I don't understand this. I got lots of questions, right? There are times when you're trying to pull off a surprise for someone in your life, and you're like, no, no, quit asking questions, and that just makes them more, ask more questions and feel more suspicious, and I don't know what to do, and, right? And, and, and so much time, we just, we don't know, like, what's the future look like? And so you start connecting the dots in all these weird ways. 
And, and I don't want you to do that. I want you to know here's how it ends. Here's how this story goes. And the way this story goes is that Jesus is going to return and he's going to make all things new. Get this, he's not going to make all new things. That's what a lot of us think. We think, you know what, I uh, signed the card, I walked the aisle, I'm in with Jesus. When I die, I'm hitting that eject button, I am out of here to heaven and let it burn. (laughs) And here's what I want to say, that's not biblical. If you die, you'll go to heaven if you're in Christ, but then you'll come back with him when he makes not everything burn, but if he burns it, it's to refine it and to make it new. And you will live forever in a new creation with a resurrected body, smelling things, tasting things, seeing glorious visions of the beach and of the Grand Canyon. Can you imagine the Grand Canyon made new? I mean, you can keep your chubby baby and cloud and harp. I don't want that. Give me the new creation. A resurrected world overseen by a resurrected Jesus. That's what's coming. That's why you hold on. That's why you don't let go. He's preeminent. Jesus is the model. Jesus is the blueprint. Jesus is is what we look at when we think about the new creation and our role in it. And here's what the Bible teaches is that we get to be witnesses. We get to be previews. We get to be kind of the movie trailer to the world of that coming reality. I love how Tom Wright, one of the commentators I've been reading on Colossians, he describes it this way. He says, Jesus is the blueprint for the genuine humanness which is on offer through the gospel. As the head of the body of the church, as the first to rise again from the dead, and above all, as the one through whom the new creation has now begun, in all these ways, Jesus is himself the one in whom we are called to discover what true humanness means in practice. We have so often settled for second best in our human lives. Jesus summons us to experience the genuine article. That's what's being referred to, that he's the firstborn from the dead. He is number one. He is over. He is ranked over death. And he's the supreme person in the new creation. Now, one of the big problems in the current creation is sin. So, okay, how's this new creation going to come when all this sin is still in the mix? And that takes us to our seventh characteristic of Jesus, is that he is reconciler of the world and us. Look at uh, verse 19 and following. For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him... To reconcile, that's going to be a key word, pay attention to that. To reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled, there it is again, in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So two times Paul uses this word reconciled. The first time he is reconciling all things in heaven and on earth. So all things in creation have been tainted, distorted, broken by sin. He's going to reconcile that, and he's going to reconcile, and he reconciles us, those of us who are trusting in him. Now, think about this. If, if all I told you was, hey, did you hear about Bill and Sue? They recently reconciled. Now, if you don't know anything else about Bill and Sue, what do you know? Class? 
We had a lot to say about Michael Jordan. We still, we still here? Come on. <laughs> Bill and Sue reconciled. What do you know about Bill and Sue? It was not good. Things were tough. They were fighting. There was hostility. Right? So by using this word reconciled, what, what Paul's here saying is implicit in it is that there's been tension. There's been conflict. And, and the whole creation, Paul goes on to describe in Romans 8, is groaning under the weight of sin. That when sin entered the world, it's like this parasite that globs on to God's good creation and just twists it. And so what, what Paul is saying here is that through Jesus, he's going to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. He's going to make it new. And he's going to reconcile us. That's what it says. You who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he's now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. We were hostile. We were alienated. We were cut off. And in Christ, here's why we hold on to him, is because he reconciles us with God. And he makes us not, not alienated, not odd, not weird, holy, blameless. You know what holiness looks like? Now, you might go, I don't know, holiness, that sounds stodgy. Here's what holiness is, because when the fruit of the Holy Spirit comes, do you know what it looks like? It looks like love and joy and kindness, peace, stuff like goodness and faithfulness and self-control. You, you, you wish you had more of that, don't you? Don't you wish you were holy? Yeah, you do. And, and here's the, that's what's offered in, in Christ. So he's the creator, he's the sustainer, he's the head of the church, he's making creation new. But the, the thing is, I was studying this, and I went like, man, if you just read all these verses, there's two words that make you go, what? And they relate to, to, to the question of how does Jesus reconcile the world? How does he do it? Look again at verse 20. Reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of of his cross. In verse 22, he's now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Wait, wait, wait. Wait, what? Hold on. Because you've just been painting this picture of big, glorious, number one ranked, never ending. And now you're saying that guy is the guy who died? That guy is the guy who didn't just die but, but was humiliated? tortured, naked, exposed, ashamed on the cross? What? Yes. Yes. That is what makes Jesus so glorious, is that he is willing to go through that to reconcile us, to make all things new. And you go, okay, well, well why, does it, why does it work like that? Well, that's the only way it could work. Think about this. If he is that big and he's that holy and he's that powerful and we are alienated and hostile in mind, verse 21, doing evil deeds. And, and we read about it. As soon as Genesis 6, I mean, they sin in Genesis 3. As soon as Genesis 6, it says that the thoughts of their hearts were only evil continually, only living for ourselves, only living for what's in it for us. If, if that's where we are, how do you bridge that gap? Right, the answer to a lot of the world is, we'll just be better. <laughs> How's that going? Is that going good? Like, have you just thought about not being selfish? Yeah, you have. 
and you stink at it. And you know why I know you stink at it? Because I really stink at it. That, that can't be the way, right? The only way that we're going to be reconciled is if the offending party bridges the gap. I read this incredible story uh, this week about this uh, guy. His name is Matt Swatzel, and he was a firefighter and an EMT, a good young guy. I think, I think at the time of what I'm going to tell you about, he was like maybe early 20s. And he was a hard worker, good at his job, but he had a 24-hour shift. And at the end of the 24-hour shift, he's driving home. He's about four minutes from his house, and he dozes off. Head-on crash. The 30-year-old woman, her 19-month-old daughter, and she's pregnant. She dies. The daughter lives. Obviously, the unborn child dies. I mean, his life's ruined. Her life's over. And her husband, this guy named Eric, and his life's ruined. His life, the way he thought it was going to go, shattered in a moment. Where Eric was a Christian, so right away, he said, you know what? I need to pray for Matt. I need to pray for him. I need to encourage him. I need to try to see if maybe I could forgive him. Now, the investigation was going on, and it went on and on and on. It actually went for multiple years, so they couldn't be in contact. But Eric, at some point, said, you know what? I don't want this to ruin this young 20-year-old's life. So he actually went to the court and appealed for the sentence to be reduced. And on the two-year anniversary of the accident, the case had just wrapped up, and Matt and Eric run into each other in the grocery store parking lot where Matt had just bought a card to send to Eric to ask for his forgiveness. And before Matt could write the card or mail the card or send the card, before Eric could open the card, Eric saw him, and he went toward him and he was sobbing, and he wrapped his arms around him, and he said, I forgive you. And that kicked off a friendship. They started going to the Waffle House about every two weeks. And they started eating together and befriending one another and building relationships. You got a picture of these guys. Here they are at the grave, which they would go back to from time to time together to visit. Listen, that, that kind of reconciliation, that only happens if Eric says, I'll bear the cost of forgiving you. Because every time I'm with you, I have to think about everything I lost. Every time I'm with you, I have to, I have to work through, do I really want to forgive this? Right, that, forgiveness isn't easy, it's costly. Right, but there's nothing that Matt could do. No amount of I'm sorry cards could kind of bridge a gap that would make them friends. But Eric says, no, I want to pursue you. I want to be your friend. I want to know you. I want to have Waffle House with you. This is what Jesus is doing to us, is what Paul says. We were hostile. We were evil. We were doing all sorts of things. We were putting him to death. 
And in his grace and in his mercy and in his love and in his kindness, he comes to us before we can do any kind of good deeds, put any of that in the mail to help him feel better about us. He wraps his arms around us and he brings us in and we're reconciled to him with the promise of having all things new in the new creation. That is what is on offer for us. That is what is available. And Paul is saying that is all yours. Verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. That word shifting is interesting. It's a passive word. Right? It's saying not, not that you would actively choose to shift, but that in your inaction you might be shifted. So here's what he's saying. He's saying, I want you to grab onto Jesus and hold on. Don't let go. Don't, don't back down. Don't, don't be seduced by the other philosophies of the world that seem so wise and so insightful. Don't be seduced by that. And don't be hardened by your own disappointments. The things that God left unanswered. But hold on to Jesus. Because he is worth everything. I know it's hard, Paul says. I know it's difficult. I know there's lots of things that pull you in so many other directions, but hold on to him. He's worth everything. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come and we ask that you would send your spirit to sustain us, to keep us, to hold us, to allow us to keep seeing in a fresh way the beauty of Jesus that we would not shift from the hope of the gospel that we've heard. Lord Jesus, you're worth it all. And so as we come to the table now and remember you and enjoy your presence here with us by the Spirit and as we sing and respond, we pray that uh, God, nothing we would do would be trying to pay you back somehow, but that we would just be receiving the grace upon grace that you give us. We pray it in Jesus' strong name. Amen.